Failing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and when you get sucked into a pocket dimension filled with desperate scavengers, prison rules apply. Kick someone's ass the first day. I'm joined on this episode once again by Dr. Aaron McDonald. Dr. McDonald is an astrophysicist, a writing consultant, a voice actor, and a public speaker on science and science fiction topics. She's currently a science consultant for the Star Trek franchise, and she's the host of the online series, Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe. Aaron, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be back. It's great to have you back aboard. Today we'll be talking about The Void, the 15th episode of the seventh season of Star Trek Voyager. The utopia of the Federation, as depicted in Star Trek, is one that we'd all like to live in. Assuming, that is, that fully automated luxury gay space communism sounds good to you. Unfortunately, however, the creators of Star Trek left us no roadmap with which to reach that paradise. No instructions on how to build a future where the persistent hate and discrimination in our current era is the exception and not the seeming norm. However, whatever socio-political magic there may be in a document like the Federation Charter, its principal tenet is undoubtedly cooperation. And as we've seen in countless Star Trek episodes, the open, selfless sharing of resources and information is the cornerstone of any successful utopia. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Aaron, it's great to have you back on the show. And the last time that we were on, uh, we were talking about how you discovered Voyager in college and how Janeway was an inspiration to you, uh, so much so that you thanked her in your thesis dedication. And with Picard uh, on CBS putting a lot of emeritus Trek stars back on TV, what do you think about the possibility of an Admiral Janeway series? Oh my gosh. I mean, who wouldn't love to see Janeway back? <laughs> sure. We all have we all have our favorite characters and so um yeah, once we started seeing some regulars pop back up in Picard, that's just what everyone thought is, "Oh, I wonder if I wonder if my captain will be back." Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, I would absolutely love to see that. Yeah, and we've every once in a while you see on the Star Trek news sites a story um, from, you know, so and so says uh, hey, maybe I'd like to do that, or somebody else says uh, I've been in talks. We'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> right. For a while, Robert Picardo was saying that he was in talks, but it looks like he's not going to be at least in season two of Picard now, uh, which is unfortunate. But I think they are definitely open to, uh, or that door is open to having former Trek stars on. Oh, yeah. And I mean, right now there's six different shows in production. So there's certainly lots of different stories to be told for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking if we did see Janeway in the future, would she still be an admiral? Like where where would she be at in her her life and her journey? That's an interesting question. I mean, uh, for me, she's always been that ambitious leader that I mean is one of the reasons that she resonated with me yeah. and so she could possibly be one of those few admirals in Star Trek who we actually like and respect <laughs> <laughs> hopefully yeah you either uh, quit Starfleet or you live long enough to see yourself be a bad admiral I guess <laughs> yeah, exactly hopefully exactly. so I'd like to think that <laughs> I'd like to think that she's actually pretty good at being an admiral and and I mean we can make the argument for it having been stuck in the Delta Quadrant on her own she was making senior command leadership decisions that in the Alpha Quadrant some of them would have had to have been run past an admiral so that's true uh, I think she'd be good at it yeah and she comes from you know a, a legacy a line of Star Trek officers I could definitely see it somebody I think a friend of mine was talking a while back about you know the admirals are just this presence that come onto the ship and yell at the captain you know for doing 
probably the right thing. And we never get a sense of like who they are. Like what about like an admiralty show uh, in a Starfleet Academy series, you know, like or having um, having a Starfleet Academy series, seeing the cadets and the, and the students, but also exploring like the admiralty side of it. And maybe Janeway could be like in a good fight situation, like she's the heroic admiral who's trying to maneuver all these other admirals who are like backstabbing yeah. and, and scheming about stuff, whatever they're <laughs> trying to do this week. Yeah, I like that. That's awesome. Well, uh, she's brought to life, of course, by the amazing Kate Mulgrew. And have you had a chance to read either of her memoirs, uh, Born With Teeth or How to Forget? Yeah, I read her first one, Born With Teeth. It is gripping. Yeah. It's a great read. Yeah. Um, she's It's very easy conversation. She you know, puts in enough information about what it was like to be on Voyager for Star Trek fans to find it interesting, but then just has a lot about her personality and who she is as a person and what has motivated her and where her life has gone. And And it's an interesting one. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed reading that book. Yeah, she had a, an amazing career even before Star Trek came around um, and was well established uh, in shows and films that I, I was too young to have known about, but it was fascinating to hear about her rise through the ranks of Hollywood and the the kind of choices um, and decisions and risks that she took. And it reminded yeah. me a lot of, of Jane Away, you know, somebody who is a noble and good person, but also is willing to sort of bend the rules and take risks if she needs to accomplish a goal. For sure. Yeah, one of my favorite anecdotes from her was hearing about making Mrs. Columbo. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to bring um, yeah, that up. <laughs> I mean, I was too young for uh, to watch Columbo when it was airing, but you yeah. know, that was certainly a show that I was well familiar with and a big fan of. And um, then finding out that, you know, no, that was Kate Mulgrew, and they tried to do kind of an ill-advised spinoff <laughs> yeah. about yeah. Mrs. Columbo. <laughs> yeah. It's a funny idea. You know, we never, it's, you know, we never see Mrs. Columbo on any of the Columbo series. She's one of those famous characters that's talked about that we never see. Um, right. Like Mavis, you know, uh, Niles's uh, wife and ex-wife on Frasier. And so they yeah, do... Yeah, or Vera. Or yep. Vera on, yeah, on Cheers, yeah. yeah. Uh, but then they do uh, a show where we just see Miss Columbo and then no Columbo. So I don't know if that was ever really gonna gonna work, but... It was never gonna work. Yeah. It was never gonna work because that's the whole... The whole comedy aspect of that is that we never see that partner. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I just, if they wanted to do a cool mystery series that was like Columbo with a woman at the helm, they could have just done that. <laughs> right. Yeah. They put a lot of expectations on that one. Yeah. Like, why shouldn't she just call in Columbo? <laughs> like, hey, I got a problem. Here's the facts. Uh, do you have an answer to this case? Right. Exactly. Um, have you ever written a book yourself or thought about writing one? That's interesting. Yeah. You know, I thought about writing books a long time ago. Once I started getting into science communication, I thought that that would sort of be the natural path as a science communicator, seeing how, you know, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Phil Plate or all these other sort of famous communicators kind of got their start by doing their job, being good at, you know, teaching, educating, and then writing a book for the general populace. Yeah. And I've completely gone like the opposite way because I tried starting to write and then I didn't feel like I was a good writer. So I kind of gave up on that. I had the opportunity to write a Audible series. So I did this with the um, the great courses. It's called The Science of Sci-Fi and it's an Audible original. And that I felt a little more comfortable doing because I was able to put my voice in it 
quite literally. I wrote and narrated it. Oh, okay, sure. So that made that a little bit better because I had a hard time always finding that balance between like being authoritative and also being my authentic self. And it just, I couldn't find a way to get that to come across on paper. But since going through that experience, now I've had the opportunity to also like, you know, write some episodes for some YouTube series and to do more on screen type writing. And then of course, being involved with Star Trek and the film industry, I've also got exposed to the process of writing screenplays. And from a fictional writing standpoint, that is very surprisingly natural for me. I think the um, the way that these stories get developed and the way that we tell them just feels more comfortable for me than like a novel per se. Interesting. But, um, but yeah, I think I'm getting better at nonfiction writing and I'd like to kind of, you know, I've got some ideas that I'm, I'm working on. So I'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. We'll hear about the experiences of a tattooed Scottish-American Slytherin N7, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's so weird (laughs) because, you know, you you do so much. And like you said, you've written so much in so many formats. But it still feels, for some reason, it's this traditional idea of, like, the book is what a personality or an expert needs to write to really, like, establish themselves. And in the meantime, you're, you know, you're writing all this other stuff and doing series series and, and whatnot. And it's like, yeah, but that book, though, should I do a book? Yeah. Yeah, that actually that hits pretty close to home because my mom is a a short story writer, but she's also written novels. Wow. But she's like a prolific short story writer. She's been published everywhere. She was in, I think, this past year's anthology of great American mystery short stories. Oh, wow. But she still doesn't see herself as a published author because she hasn't had that big novel break. And it's it's crazy how we get into that mindset. But, But you're absolutely right. There is that sort of societal expectation. I just think of the thousands of pages that I've written of scripts for podcasts and uh, and things like that. And it's like, I could never write a book, though. That's too hard. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I think, too, for me, the big hang up that I had for so long was the writing process that I felt like what you need to do to write a book is to sit down and start writing it. And then I had never really properly been taught that you can also just outline your story yeah, and yeah. then just fill in these outlines over time. Yeah. And then you end up with a book. And as soon as I learned that, and I learned that through the the screenwriting process, I was like, oh, well, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> that, that sounds doable for me. So it's all just about how our brains work. But there's other people who are like, oh, I could never lay out a whole book. I would just have to start at the beginning and start writing. And yeah. so we're all different. <laughs> That's what trips me up with something like NaNoWriMo, which I've never still, I haven't completed still uh, in oh, the yeah. many years that I've <laughs> tried. And their their encouragement is like, just write, just get, sit down there and write. And you got to do like a 1500 words a day or whatever it is. And I guess what I f- keep forgetting is, you know, I'd rather outline it, but you can outline it, you know, in October. <laughs> and then when you sit down right. for November 1st, <laughs> then just push the words out. Yeah. So I've got to get my uh, my schedule together as far as that goes. Oh, my gosh. I know. Me, too. And I do think that probably NaNoWriMo is, is fabulous and it's got a great community. Oh, yeah. And I do think it gets a lot of people writing. But I do think that that's kind of what got into my head that I couldn't write because I used to use NaNoWriMo as like, OK, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write. This is going to be my chance. Yeah. And then I would just fail at it. But like you said, I never put in the planning part. I'd probably <laughs> do 3,500 words a day and then like lose 2,000 of them when I'm kind of going back and editing. Right, Which right, they say, exactly. don't edit, they say, just get it done. So, yeah. Well, working as a consultant for Star Trek, I know that you'll be beamed into space immediately by your superiors if you break your NDA. But can you talk about the generalities of what you're wor- uh, working on for Viacom CBS? 
<laughs> yeah, um, beamed into space is a very good way of putting it, and uh, I think that would be better. <laughs> Probably what would happen. Um, no, but you know, overall, what it really is is that they. I have been involved with Star Trek from a fan-facing standpoint for a couple of years, giving talks at their conventions and on the Star Trek cruise. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as I started to get more of these shows in, in development, I was I had done some just kind of one-off consulting um, for season three of Discovery, mm-hmm. along with my friend Mohammed Noor. And we've announced that. That's not a, that's yeah. not a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that... I think they realized that there was an opportunity and I was available and I'm local to LA and I, of course I was available. I would tr- do anything for that. <laughs> you but, make yourself um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we basically had that conversation of saying, you know, Hey, well, we've got a lot of shows in production now and maybe this would be like, let's think about this as an actual job because the previous Star Trek series who'd had science consultants was more like what I had done for discovery that they were, they were either contract or like a one hire, you know, for the season. Yeah. But then that was it. And, uh, but this was the first time that they've done sort of a production office type hire where, you know, I'm hired by the production office and then the shows can use me if they want. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not, I'm, my work in every show completely varies as much as the shows are varied some shows will have me literally in the writer's room you know helping them break story or just answering questions or having like fun brown bag you know nonsense discussions right um but then the but then some other shows will just be like all right well here's the script can you just scan this over and tell us if we said anything wrong and Mm -hmm. um and yeah, so they can, some use me more than others. And obviously everyone's in different stages of development. And then with everything going on right now, you know, it, it's kind of slowed production down a little bit, but you know, I'm able to keep busy though. And it's a lot of shows. <laughs> yeah. And the best thing is you've really like achieved your dream of becoming a warp drive expert. People are paying you to ask you questions about this stuff now. I know. I used to joke that like I was a rocket scientist by day and a warp drive expert by night, <laughs> yeah. but like now I'm a warp drive expert by day and night. Yeah, that's <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, obviously, it's it's a dream job. But one of the cool things about it, though, is that I feel like as a science consultant, that role can encompass so many different things. But particularly in the Star Trek community, yeah. it has been a pipeline for people to become professional writers, where we had, you know, Narain Shankar and Andre Bermanis have gone on to be executive producers and showrunners. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I kind of feel that, too. It's like I my responsibilities in writers rooms have started to increase, you know, help going from helping write dialogue to help coming up with story arcs. And so, you know, even though my job is to be a science consultant, I'm still learning a lot. And being exposed to six writers' rooms at once is just a fire hose of experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, people would spend a decade trying to get that that equivalent amount of exposure and and different um, just different styles of how people run rooms and how they write. And so, it's definitely a um, it's definitely a learning experience, and it's just the beginning. I'm really excited. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to Lower Decks, and I'm wondering oh if God. with the Nickelodeon series that's currently in, currently in development, um, there will be a stronger emphasis on the science elements. Like, I think it'd be great for a kid series to be to try really be educational. Um, you know, why let the Magic School Bus have all the fun? 
Right. No, I think that's absolutely true. And for me, like, I will say, I just, I love, I love Lower Decks. I can't wait for people to see it. I didn't work on season one, um, but I, I love it. And I'm so excited for it to come out. <laughs> um, but like you said, the, the Nickelodeon, I mean, I've been a big fan of animation, you know, for kids as well as adults um, forever. Yeah. And I just think that, that, like you said, this Nickelodeon show is a great way to introduce an entirely new demographic for Star Trek. And it's got the capability to do it. You know, it's a good world with a lot of good life lessons. And so, you know, the writer's team and the, the group, the showrunners that they have working on it are, are fabulous. And I just, I'm very, very excited to see that one um, move forward. But animation always takes a, a lot longer. Yeah, it's a lot yeah. longer process. Yeah. Uh, with the quarantine that's going on and social distancing, it has to have complicated your work uh, speaking on science and science fictional topics. Yeah, it's it's hard because I got my start with all this at sci-fi conventions. So they'll yeah. always hold a special place in my heart. Um, and I've been able to do a lot of virtual conventions. And I think it's actually been easier than I thought it would be. I think everyone's getting a little bit more savvy with different environments to work in. You know, I restarted my Twitch channel, which had been kind of quiet for about a year and a half. I was able to start a Patreon page and um, start you know, instead of going to conventions and do these big one-off events every month or so, just do weekly content for people. And so I've been able to fill that void that way. But at the same time, it's just not the same. Yeah, it's not the same as seeing people <laughs> in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that you've been streaming on tw uh, Twitch as well. Is that just presentations or are you, are you gaming as well? I'm doing all of the above. So okay. I basically have a set schedule where I will game for part of the week as just for my own entertainment as well as other people. And I just play <laughs> through Mass Effect because that's my oh, favorite yeah. video game series. Okay. That was like, I was like, I, I feel comfortable doing this. This is, I've played Mass Effect so many times. that <laughs> You're not going to make I, a fool that... out of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because I'm not a pro gamer by any sense of the <laughs> word. And then I also have what I call the episode club. And that's where the patron side comes in, where the patrons will choose either two or three episodes of a TV series or a movie. And we'll talk about the science behind it. So, for example, this week we're doing two Stargate SG-1 episodes. And, um, and so I'll just talk for an hour and we'll kind of break it down and interact in the chat, which is great about Twitch. And then I record that and then post it to my YouTube. And then I also started teaching Astronomy 101. I just started putting together like my old astronomy classes and started streaming those on Twitch on Fridays. And so and then again, posting the recording so people can see them after the fact. But that's been great for me. You know, it's you're not going to get a college credit, but it's Astronomy right. 101. <laughs> yeah. Exactly how I would teach it. So, yeah, if you want to learn about astronomy in a fun way. Um, speaking of video games and Mass Effect, um, I know that I don't know. I think the old Bioware is kind of dead. At this point, because Mark Laidlaw, you know, a longtime writer has left. Yeah. It's just kind of in a general brain drain. Um, it seems like they're going in the wrong direction with stuff like Anthem. How do you feel? Are you optimistic about future uh, Bioware or Mass Effect games? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard because when EA bought Bioware, everyone was kind of yeah, worried about yeah, the yeah, direction yeah. that that was going to go. Um, and they certainly had plenty of stumbling blocks. You know, we can rag on Andromeda all we want, but like, I remember the Mass Effect 3 ending. So let's not, <laughs> you know, let's not hold that up on a pedestal sure. just yet. Yeah. Um, and frankly, like, I do think that people are more critical, but some of oh, that definitely. is just because Mass Effect and Dragon Age are so good. They're yeah. so good. Yeah, it's you a high standard. 
Yeah, it's a very high standard, and it's very hard to capture that again. So for me, like, for example, when I when Andromeda was coming out, I knew that if I went into that after, like, even within six months of playing Mass Effect, I was going to be disappointed because I, I just wanted to hang out with my Mass Effect squad. Right, um, right. So I gave myself distance, and then um, when Andromeda came out, I played it on day one, and then, like, my whole personal life got upended. I left my part, my husband, I got divorced. Um, I <laughs> lost all my video game consoles in the process. Oh, no. and so I, <laughs> yeah. So I'd started Mass Effect Andromeda. I was there for all the day one hangups and then didn't get to start it until I'd settled down sort of a couple of months later mm-hmm. when everything had been patched Yeah, and I could see the improvement and yeah. um, it's annoying that they had those issues in the beginning, but I think the story was solid um, I think where Bioware and EA has struggled is with the um, the focus on online content. You know, yeah. that mm-hmm. people play Bioware games, so we don't have to interact with other humans. Right, yep. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, there's, I feel like there's a, I mean, the whole industry is sort of sliding that way and has been for a while, but there's a, there's a call uh, amongst fans for single-player games, and uh, Bioware always provided that, and so... Hopefully they yeah. can return to that. I always liked Andromeda fine, but like you, I, I got into the main part of it months after it had come out. And so my biggest regret was as it was wrapping up, I could kind of tell that it was going to be an abrupt ending mm-hmm. uh, and would definitely lead into a second game. And as I'm playing, I'm thinking like, there's not going to be a second game, I don't think. So this is it, yeah. you know, but uh, yeah, but yeah, I liked it fine. Are you excited about um, a possible remaster of Mass Effect? Oh my god, of course I am. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of these, I will just eat up every rumor about that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like they, they reopened the Bioware store yesterday, so of course I was just yep. like, oh, because Mass Effect Remake is coming, Mass Effect Remake is coming. Yeah. Um, but really, I honestly, unless they're going to add more story content, I think the only game of that trilogy that could use a remaster is Mass Effect 1. Mm-hmm. Because Mass Effect 2 is, like I'm playing right now, the mechanics are solid, and then any sort of iffy mechanics that we struggled with in Mass Effect 2 got improved in Mass Effect 3. Yeah. And so unless they're going to do like a story overhaul with the Mass Effect 3 ending, I you know, I think Mass Effect 1 would be great to see in modern um modern graphics and all of that but two holds up it's it's an impressive improvement between one and two yeah go back and take out the the clips and uh maybe smooth out the mako sections a little more and uh bring it in line with two and three that was the worst part about streaming mass effect one live was having to drive the mako in front of like 20 or 30 strangers (laughs) driving off cliffs and yeah (laughs) <laughs> oh, it was not dignified. I mean, we just turned it into a thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why did you choose this specific episode, The Void, to discuss today? Oh, you know, thinking about some of the usual Voyager episodes that I talk about, Voyager is usually my favorite episode or favorite series to break the science down in because sure. they tend to be a little more science heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some episodes that I talk about all the time. You know, we talk about Eye of the Needle, Blink of an Eye. Those are like my big go-to ones. And I feel like The Void also kind of gets forgotten because it's a little bit similar to the season one where they're stuck in the loop. It's like episode five or six or something uh, really early on in Voyager. And again, where they're stuck in a void in space. Um, so this one kind of came late, you know, to the series. And I think it just gets overshadowed by some of those other 
Voyagers Trapped in a Bubble yeah. <laughs> stories. Yeah. Um, and I love this one because it, it brings in so many great aspects of Star Trek from the we're trapped, uh, we have to f- science our way out of this, to we have to not fight people, we have to cooperate with people, yeah. to like unique ways of communication. And I think those are huge Star Trek tropes that it's nice to see wrapped into one episode. Yeah, there's an episode at, near the beginning of TNG uh, where silence has lease, where they get trapped in a void-like space. And then, of course, there's this lizard-faced monster that's you know trying to kill them all. And it's more about, <laughs> it's a very TOS-like type episode. It's more about like the scary of being out in space and exploring. And then we fast forward now to the end of the last of the series that it's set in the 24th century. And it's just really about cooperation. You know, it's about reaffirming uh, the values of the Federation. And I think that that's really neat. I mean, they could have done anything with it. Um, and it and it reaffirms the, the mission of Voyager as well, which isn't just to get home, but also to represent the Federation in the Delta Quadrant which was a big focus of episodes in earlier seasons. But at this point, they've been traveling for a while and it's been impossible to be perfect in their behavior and they've interfered knowingly and unknowingly and broke broke the prime directive a couple times. But, (laughs) you know, at this point in the show, they're closer than ever to getting home, but they're still holding fast to their principles. And they actually kind of start a federation of sorts like in this episode. You know, I think it would be really tragic if after coming all this way, they were going to get destroyed, you know, in some pocket universe. (laughs) And even Tuvok and Chakotay are like, you know, we might have to like show a little muscle here to get out of this. But Janeway reminds them that cooperation and mutual respect is that's why they're all here. It's the founding principles of the Federation. Yeah. And I think why that why that works so well late in the seventh season is because if they had been trapped in this in the early couple of seasons, you would have still been like, you guys have to get out, like do anything. You've got to get home. You've got to get home. And now it's like, you know, they've been going for a long time. They're, they're like half the distance from where they started. Yeah. Um, and I think that you just have this sense of like the entire crew's just kind of like, well, we're here. Like we need to get out, yeah. but <laughs> right. we'll try to do it the right way. Cause what have we got to lose? Like we're here for a while. So, <laughs> yeah. And they meet some, uh, some tough characters, uh, which we'll yeah. talk about uh, in a little bit. And we'll talk about the science of the episode as well. But first I want to say, we are of course talking about the Voyager episode, the void, the 15th, or 14th, depending on how you count Flesh and Blood, which was a uh, two-part episode, uh, episode of the seventh season. It first aired on Valentine's Day, February 14th of the year 2001. The tale plays by Raph Green and James Kahn. Green was a staff writer for the last two seasons of Voyager, and Kahn was a supervising producer on Voyager's seventh season, in addition to penning three other scripts for the show. He got a start with Trek by co-writing the fifth season TNG episode, The Masterpiece Society. And the story for this episode comes from Raph Green and Kenneth Biller. And Kenneth Biller is a uh, long, long-time uh, member of the uh, Star Trek uh, Voyager family. Uh, Biller has been with Voyager from its third episode, Parallax, as an executive story editor. That's the episode, I think, where they um, encounter a, a singularity and they're sort of trapped in that loop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was an executive producer on the show by its seventh and final season. He also wrote or contributed to 35 episodes of Voyager over the series run, and he directed the fourth season episodes Revulsion and One, which are both... Pretty good episodes. So one of the um, the major voices, uh, along with people like Jerry Taylor and Joe Minoski to shape Voyager. This episode was directed by Mike Vahar. Vahar has directed on many sci-fi and cult series, and he's directed 31 episodes of post-TOS, pre-Discovery Star Trek, and Ronald D. Moore has described him as his favorite director on the series. 
The start date for this episode is 54553.4 and actually runs to 54562.7. And your assignment, Aaron, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Void. Oh, okay. Um, Voyager gets stuck in a bubble of subspace among many species and builds a new federation in their quest for survival. Now that's a hook. <laughs> Thank you. You're putting those, those screenwriting skills you're learning to the test here. Yeah. All <laughs> yeah, right. Perfect. There's my log line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. And there aren't a ton, exactly. Um, this is, you know, late Voyager, seventh season. It's a fairly run-of-the-mill plot in terms of Star Trek. Uh, so much so that this premise or a similar one was used previously in the Star Trek animated series episode, The Time Trap. Uh, in that episode, Kirk and crew are drawn into something of a space sargasso sea and are forced to work in cooperation with the crew of a Klingon ship to escape. That episode also features the return of Commander Kor, although he's of course played by James Duhon instead of John Kolokos in the animated series. The idea of Janeway and Voyager creating a Federation-like body was always part of the episode's conception. In fact, the working title for the episode was Federation. This episode has something of a focus on music, and as an Easter egg, the original series theme can be heard both in the sequence where Phantom's species is communicating with the gods and in the last scene in the transporter room. And this episode has a few connections to fellow sci-fi series Babylon 5. Uh, guest actor Robin Sachs played several characters on Babylon 5, and his character's name in The Void, Valen, is a holy figure amongst the Minbari race in B5. One of the ships in this episode is reminiscent of the White Star class of ship in Babylon 5, and this episode's director, Mike Vahar, directed 14 episodes of the syndicated series. And this episode was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Makeup in a series. A uh, lot of aliens on display, a real coterie of, uh, of creepy crawlies here. Let's talk about some of the guest stars in this episode. Robin Sachs appears as Valen. Sachs was a frequent guest star on TV throughout his career, appearing on series like Babylon 5 and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And he played the role of Ceres in Galaxy Quest. That's how I knew yes. the name. <laughs> he's appeared, yeah, he's got that, you know, that real kind of gruff uh, way to him. And he's appeared under a lot of latex in his career, but you can still pick up on who it is, yeah. That's awesome. Sachs previously auditioned for the roles of Benjamin Sisko and The Doctor, as well as other roles in the franchise before being cast as Valen. He was also a prolific voice actor. He appeared in many cartoons and video games, including several Bioware games. He voiced Admiral Karath in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, Lord Harrowmont in Dragon Age Origins, and Zaid Masani in Mass Effects 2 and 3. Oh, he's also Zaid. The bad guy from Galaxy Quest is also Zaid. That's My right. mind is blown. Yeah. This is fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, the, he um, passed away in 2013, but the Citadel DLC of Mass Effect has uh, more than a few Easter eggs uh, to him and also Zaid uh, in some of the missions. We love our murder grandpa. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, Paul Wilson appears as Loquar. Wilson's had a long career in TV and film, appearing most notably as Paul Krepence on the NBC series Cheers. He also appeared in the films Problem Child 2 and Office Space, and he's one of those classic that guy actors, you know? It's like, hey, it's that guy. Uh, in Office Space, he plays the other Bob, along with John C. McGinley's Bob Slidell. 
Scott Lawrence also appears as Garen in the episode. Lawrence is another classic that guy. He's appeared in many TV shows and films since his first TV role in a 1987 episode of Murder, She Wrote. He appeared in the films Avatar and Star Trek Into Darkness and has been one of the main voices of Darth Vader in video games since the 1990s. Cool. Yeah, with the old uh, LucasArts games for the most uh, for the most part, and then he's been brought back uh, recently to do some of the um, uh, Star Trek VR or Star Wars VR games. Oh my gosh, those are so good! Yeah, Vader Immortal. I have all three of them. Oh really? Okay, there you go. Oh yeah, is this so good? Is this the one where um, you basically? I don't know if, what what your motivation is, but he's like like training you and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You basically are like being um, you are you travel to Mustafar and. Okay. Um, then, yeah, there's like a whole story arc and then he basically brings you like you're kind of a forced apprentice. And so there's three arcs to it. There's basically three acts to the whole story. Um, and then in the third arc, you're you're basically fighting him. It's funny. Fun fact. It was my first very serious VR injury was playing that. Game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I uh, was was throwing a thermal detonators with great force down a a uh, crevasse at some ATSTs and slammed my hand into the oak bed frame and pretty much like definitely a hairline fracture oh, no. if not worse it was uh, pretty impressive drew you're, blood you're yeah, a real veteran weird. got the scars to prove it <laughs> yeah. Jonathan Delarco appears in the episode as Phantom of course, Jonathan made his Trek debut in the now classic fifth season episode of TNG, I Borg. He would go on to reprise that role in the seventh season premiere, Descent Part 2, and in several episodes of the CBS all-access series, Picard. Del Arco was a frequent TV guest star in the 90s, and he had a regular role on the TNT series, The Closer, and its follow-up series, Major Crimes, as Dr. Fernando Morales. And Michael Seamus Wiles appears in the episode as Basal. Wiles may be the that guyist of them all, appearing in many films and TV shows since his debut in the 1980s. He's appeared in the films Fight Club, Transformers, The X-Files film, and Magnolia, as well as many more. And he's had regular roles on both Breaking Bad and Sons of Anarchy. Awesome. So it's an episode with uh, video game connections and an episode full of um, male actors you've definitely seen in other places. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's almost like a prison uh, movie, you know, or a prison episode. So you got to reach out and get like all these, you know, tough guy types to, to right. Populate and I can't imagine. Did Michael Westmore do the makeup for this one? Do you know? I'm just assuming that he did. Yeah, I don't know for sure. Because he's got what like or whoever did the makeup design, and yeah, I would assume that it's Michael Westmore. But they have what at least three or four new aliens to come up with that are fully developed aliens it's pretty impressive yeah that's true and a couple uh, old kind of familiar ones as well but yep. yeah it's a real uh, alien palooza let's uh <laughs> let's talk about the episode itself and the science on star trek is obviously it's a vehicle for the story um first and for, foremost you know they're worried about total accuracy second but so much of the science on trek starts with a grain of reality or at least theory uh something that sparks the imagination and then the writers extrapolate you know something plausible uh, or at least you know theoretical about astronomy um phenomenon to uh to form the basis of the episode and i love the i love the science episodes of trek uh, especially of voyager where it steers more into the psi than the phi and voyager has had some great examples of that um you know, we talked about the um, parallax, I think it's called, the episode where they deal with the singularity and um, the very uh, fast spinning planet, you know, the blink of an eye. Um, and I think that 
having the captain be a former science officer as well is a real affirmation that, you know, science is important not only to the show, but to the Federation in general. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think um, that's certainly why I end up getting asked about it and personally talk the most about Voyager, about Voyager. episodes is exactly huh. that. Um, and plus, they're in a Delta Quadrant, you know, they're somewhere where it hasn't been explored before. And then like you mentioned, with Janeway's past as a science officer, that's her proclivity to try to get some scientific data. Yeah. And also, yeah, and there's, there's just the reality of we can't play off of Vulcan history, you know, or Romulans right. or, or Klingons. Like there is no society that we really can draw stories from. So instead, they sort of dove into that scientific aspect, which they didn't have to do. But I, I really like no. that they did. Um, and of course, there's a lot of science that's just, you know, total fantasy on the show. There's, you know, rebellious <laughs> holograms and gigantic viruses. Tom Paris turns into a salamander. But even episodes like that are only delving into the established rules of science in the Star Trek universe. They're still sort of treating it in the same way. All the all the characters are you know, approaching these problems with research and hypothesis and experimentation, still following the tenets of scientific method, uh, even if it's like fake science. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's fabulous. As somebody who consults not only for Star Trek, but for other sci-fi creators as well, where do you draw the line between real world science and theory <laughs> and, and the I, fiction you, that you're advising on? I mean, it must. Right. <laughs> do you ever read something from somebody and just think, this isn't even, I know what you're trying to do, but oh boy. Yeah. And uh, don't, no names. Yes. <laughs> don't, don't say any names. <laughs> no. I think it's, it's one of those things that, yeah, the science has to take the backseat because it's ultimately about the story. That's what's going to keep people interested. That's what's going to draw them in. And you want that emotional connection to yeah, it. Yeah. Um, where the science comes in is where we say, okay, this is like the broad brush idea of what we want to do. Um, does it, does that tie to anything scientific? Like, are there any connections we can make? And if it's really out of left field, then it's just a matter of saying like, okay, if you want to do that, great. Let's just not explain it. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> like, yeah, let's just be more vague with what's going on here because you're starting to explain it and it's starting to throw people. Like, as a reader, it's starting to throw me out. So... Um, that that's really where finding that balance is, is it's knowing when to explain something and when not to. Boy, that must be really tough to hone that skill. It's, it's a tricky one because you don't want to step on the toes of creatives and writers. Oh, yeah. Like I, you know, they, they are professionals. This is what they do. They are good at it. And so just because it doesn't make scientific sense, that's not why they're telling that story. So yeah. I think that's why a lot of people who go into this field of doing entertainment science consulting find it sometimes to be a struggle is realizing how much you have to let go of science um, and be okay with that. <laughs> that's interesting. That seems counterintuitive, but I guess, yeah, it's just necessary. Yeah. There's, um, there's a distinction in sci-fi between hard sci-fi where there may be some fictional or theoretical elements, but the science is mostly observed rigorously. And soft sci-fi, where the story takes place in a sci-fi setting, but no real attention is given to whether the science is plausible. And I think Trek probably leans toward hard sci-fi, but I think a case could be made that it sits right in the middle between hard and soft. It's like firm, like cheese sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely put it right in that middle um, because you can... Um, you have opportunities, and I think particularly because you have such a such a long, well-established canon that you have so many in-universe technology 
built up that is able to be used that you have to create these rules for how warp drive works, how dilithium works, how transporters work, because they're going to be referenced over and over and over again. And that's a lot of like where my job comes in right now is making sure that that all stays consistent across the board. Um, which is not stressful at all. <laughs> um, but I love that sort of hard to soft. It's like I always tell people when you meet people and they just say, oh, I'm a sci-fi fan. That's like meeting another heavy metal fan and being like, oh, I like heavy metal. You're going to ask follow up. Yeah, it's like, OK, well, what kind of heavy metal do you like? Yeah. <laughs> They're not all the same. So, um, yeah, I would definitely argue that Star Trek sits right in the middle. Sometimes it'll lean into those scientific explanations and sometimes it's like you know what we're just gonna have the most ridiculous nonsense because we can yeah and at least like you said like at least when they're sort of leave the path of real science they've got they replace it with their own science like their own fictional science that they stick to fairly rigorously where would you put our beloved mass effect i think their universe is it makes concessions to real world science but there's a lot of elements that lean toward fantasy as well Yeah, I would, you know, so I've actually done a lot of science of Mass Effect as well. Um, I know more about Element Zero than, like, I should. (laughs) (laughs) I would actually put it closer toward hard science, even even more so than Star Trek, because they did such a good job of the in-universe technology explanations that even though Ezo and... um, the way that that works as a technology is so in-universe self-consistent and plays and plays a major role in the stories yeah. that, you know, they, they tend, personally, I would say they tend more toward the hard sci-fi side of things. Yeah. That's, um, and then, you know, creatures from beyond the galaxy uh, also exist and want to wipe out all sentient life. Sometimes that Obviously. happens too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As we've seen. Well, the principle that's explored in this episode uh, is the idea of a cosmic void, which is a real phenomenon, uh, although the titular void in this episode seems to be more of a pocket universe uh, accessible by these nominally one-way wormholes. Yeah, they um, they basically kind of refer to it as a pocket of subspace. Mm. And by when we mean subspace, yeah, it's like it's its own universe. It sits outside of our fabric. Um, and then they talk about these funnels that, like you said, are essentially one-way wormholes. And they get into some pretty deep explanations about how it's like these graviton force fields yeah. um, form, and then they, when they collapse, they pull everything into this bubble. And mm-hmm. it's it's pretty solid. I like it. Um, yeah, uh, gravitons um, also... Um, uh, neutri- not, well, they, sometimes they talk about neutrinos, but um, what's the chronotons? <laughs> Chronot- and, chronotons. And chronotons. Yeah, chronotons are made up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or something that they always like to go to. And to be fair, gravitons are almost as made up as chronotons are. I think gravitons we've seen more in, quote, real physics yeah. because people have been searching for a particle associated with the gravitational force. Sure. Um, but there's a lot of argument to be made that gravity isn't a force. It's just the shape of our fabric of space-time. Yeah. And so saying that there's a graviton... It's not any more scientific than a chronoton. <laughs> yeah, you'd think that even you know, even if they uh, don't exist, uh, if they've learned to manipulate gravity the way they have in their time uh, with gravity plating and tractor mm-hmm. beams, they would have some fancier, <laughs> some, some term or some refined uh, sort of name for something. But yeah, I mean, graviton is like, oh, I get it. Okay, it's, it's gravity, gravity particles. Gravity. Yeah, which exactly. uh, may or may not actually uh, exist. Um what is uh, the science on, on pocket universes? Um, that's a really broad question, I guess. But uh, I know that like they're 
connected to like string theory and researchers theorize, uh, I've heard that our own universe may be a pocket universe of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole idea of multiverse theories that, um, again, scientifically, mathematically, in our big cosmology, theoretical astrophysics realm, yeah. there's nothing saying they can't exist. It's just a matter of not necessarily being able to access them. And when it comes to maybe our universe being a pocket or a bubble of a bigger universe, um, that's that kind of ties to this dripping black hole theory. That's kind of the way that they visualize it in this episode. There's major distinctions, but um, the way that they show the image of that big funnel going into this bubble yeah. is kind of the same idea as these dripping black hole universe theories that we do have in multiverse. Um, the issue with multiple universe theories is it's just like we have no way of knowing how to test or even access yeah. another universe. Yeah. It's just so far out of our realm of being able to do. Yeah, it's all conceptual um, and mathematic, I suppose, too. Yeah. Um, for for the amount, so, you know, in Star Trek, they utilize subspace for everything, I think. But, and of course. It's a great go-to. Yeah, and <laughs> subspace uh, fictional, so uh, that's a problem. But it seems like they don't know as much as they should about subspace. You know, when you, when, when early astronauts uh, and the uh, designers that made the rockets and engineers just piled everybody into a big, you know, tube full of uh, explosive and just sent them up. They were pretty sure that everything was going to be okay, but I guess there was some <laughs> risk there. But it seems like they're always flying out using technology and engines that take advantage of warp fields and subspace. And then every week they're running into some like who knew there could be an inert layer of subspace. Like, don't they have, like, subspace telescopes or something? Shouldn't they see variations, uh, you know, inconsistencies in the subspace field? But suddenly they're stuck in this uh, nine light year across uh, layer of subspace that's like, wow, this is the first time this has happened to anybody, I guess. Yeah, and I think that that has always entertained me in the sense that in order to be able to fold normal space the way that we do to make wormholes and to or not to make wormholes to make warp drives and to basically poke into subspace in order to do that not to mention set up all these subspace communications you know beacons that we have throughout the federation right um you would you would imagine that they would know more about these but that being said i think that sometimes we have to give credit for the fact that like in the future, they're just going to know so much yeah, that right. it's like there's there's we know that there's an infinite amount of weird things that subspace can do to us. So, like, here's just some basics on how to get yourself out of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they don't have to explain it to us in the 21st century watching the show. Like they just they just get it every once in a while. Some right. backward caveman from the 20th century will show up on the show and they're like, oh, we've got subspace and it does this. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a great construct for fictional storytelling. Um, there's another episode of Voyager that deals with an expanse of empty space. Uh, in night, um, the Voyager encounters an area of space uh, 2,500 light years in diameter that contains, as far as they can tell, no stars or planets. And it will take them two years to cross at uh, maximum warp. And it's a struggle for them both logistically and psychologically because of all the emptiness. And it's a pretty good episode. But my understanding is that when astrophysicists talk about voids, they're usually talking about voids between galaxies in intergalactic space. Yeah, these are those distant scales that it's hard, even as sci-fi, you know, ardent sci-fi fans or even people who have you know, a good understanding of astronomy. It's hard to wrap your head around how 
there's a difference between a dozen light years to a few thousand light years to 250 million millions. light years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, it's just hard to wrap your head around. And, you know, even when I was working as an astronomer, I was studying our local universe, which is, you know, way out beyond our own galaxy and into these galaxy clusters. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's what you do. And so, yeah, when we talk about voids in actual astronomy we are talking about just gaps in the distance between galaxy clusters mm -hmm. that we've seen develop and we can model to some extent how those show up um the ones that don't quite make a lot of sense i think a lot of people have heard of like the boots void mm -hmm. um that you know it's it's just one of those things that the universe is a big puzzle and we don't have access to the pieces <laughs> we just get thrown them and we get to piece it together as we get them so it can be tricky sometimes but it's really interesting and these voids are caused by they're like dark energy it's like swiss cheese like dark energy is the air bubble that's pushing the cheese out like what causes Well that's it? kind of yeah so you know, our universe is expanding and it's accelerating as it's expanding. And um, so dark energy is that pressure that's causing it to expand. If you want to blow up a balloon, you have to blow air into it. Um, mm -hmm. But the models for how the galaxy clusters have kind of fractured off into that Swiss cheese component that we've looked at, um, it really can just be done if you have sort of a quasi, essentially uniform distribution of particles and then just let gravity take over over billions of years you'll start to get these just threads come together that look like you know almost like neurons or just these these weird formations that come up but yeah i mean we hardly know anything about dark energy how it's distributed if there are greater concentrations of it um and then even how dark matter plays into that dark matter is a completely different construct yeah. and it's just this material that we can see interact gravitationally we can see light getting curved around these areas of space we can see stars orbit regions faster than they should based on how much stuff we can actually see is there um so we know there's some material out there that we can't detect traditionally but have a gravitational component so there's still tons of mysteries out there that's what makes this sort of star trek science fiction work so well it's because there's a lot of mysteries we can play off of yeah and i i don't blame the writers that came up with star trek but i would just figure if they're moving uh in ships faster than light and they're and they're manipulating space in all these ways the fabric of space they really should have a handle on uh dark matter and dark energy in fact they probably use it every day uh, in the way that like Mass Effect characters have you know exotic matter that you know powers their their ships, um, but of course the writers you know they, they don't want to go in some direction and be totally wrong about it when we next year you know the new Stephen Hawking discovers you know how to detect dark matter or something like that. So they're they're in another one of those kind of tough positions creatively where you know how do we push this forward? Every once in a well, while, well, and two. Yeah, kind of like what you're saying, though, is that our knowledge of dark matter and dark energy is better now than it was two decades ago when even Voyager was airing. Yeah, so yeah. it was a matter of like, what, you know, are we comfortable playing with and what aren't we comfortable playing with? And yeah. so um, there's still a lot we can we can do with those. Every once in a while, they'll run into like, oh, we found a dark matter nebula, but we're not really going to like yeah. show it all that much because we don't want to seem like we don't know what we're talking about. So <laughs> right. Like if, if Star Trek goes another 100 years uh, or another 50 years to 100 years, um, I'd love to, for them to try to embrace that, assuming we learn more about um, those those weird things that we don't know about our about our galaxy. It could totally right. change the yeah. show, too. Absolutely. What would space be like inside of a void? Like, would it be 
totally black like we see in the episode? Would it would the properties of space be different in a void? It's so interesting thinking about that because this was this was one of those questions posed for um, astronomers for decades was if if our universe was infinite, wouldn't our night sky be completely bright? Right. Because all stars for all time would have been able to reach us yeah, eventually. Right, right. Um, and so that's kind of like the same thing, taking that away. Now, if you were to travel to example, like the boots void, again, talking about scales, there still are probably some star systems out there, like hanging around, that, sure. you know, got kicked out of a galaxy or something. It's not to say it's completely empty. Yeah. It's just relative the to these other galaxies. way lower. Yeah. 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 Density is way lower. So in normal space, a void wouldn't necessarily have that same effect, but... If you're looking at um, this, you know, pocket of subspace, then, yeah, essentially all rules are broken. We're here where there's no star systems, so there would not be any extra light to shine off of Mm. um, or to reflect. You're just any ships that are there. That's the only source of heat or light that you're able to get. Yeah. And I think that it's I mean, you have to set the story somewhere. I think it's interesting that all of Star Trek takes place you know, in our galaxy and we very rarely do anything with any um, like surrounding galaxies yeah. or, or different places. You know, we were talking about Mass Effect before and in the latest Mass Effect game Andromeda, uh, the whole plot is that the main character and a group of other beings traverse the space between the Milky Way and Andromeda. And it takes like 600 years, I think, but yeah. they're all asleep for the journey. But if they looked out the window, like, what would the space look like between galaxies? Yeah, that's interesting, you know, because we can see Andromeda with the naked eye, even with the naked eye. So, um, you know, light has had time to reach us from Andromeda. Um, Light is traveling from the Milky Way out into the universe. So I think that there would be still some stars. I think they would just be much fainter, much harder to see. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, it's... It's interesting because that light, that light will have dispersed over time, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, maybe you could see other more distant galaxies if you had the right uh, or more powerful technology. Yeah, it's interesting. It's cool to think about, though. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, there's been some great media in addition to Trek about intergalactic travel, and it usually focuses on the effect uh, of nothingness or oblivion on the travelers. Not so much in this episode, more in Night, the, the Voyager episode. There's a book by uh, Paul Anderson called Tau Zero, where a damaged spaceship continues to accelerate out of our galaxy and eventually the universe, and the crew has to sort of deal with that. Um, and there's also a great Swedish film that came out uh, two or three years ago called Aniara, which is based on a poem. Uh, written in the 50s. And it's about a ship which is heading to Mars, but it loses the ability to maneuver and it follows a trajectory out of the solar system and how the occupants deal with that, just, you know, interstellar space. Hmm, that's interesting. They don't, spoiler, they don't deal with it well. <laughs> yeah, right. Who'd have thought? Yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it's just a testament to how tough Janeway is, I think, because she gets pretty bummed in that episode night. Uh, but in this episode, we get into a similar situation and she jumps right on the horse and yeah. she starts forming an, an alliance that's going to get them out of there. I like that. And I do think that that has come from the seven years of being stuck in the Delta Quadrant. That's where yeah, again, the, the character like, development. She's like, all right, I she, got this. <laughs> she's an old hand at being stuck. Yeah, we've got to get ourselves out of here. But I do like to at the end, you know, where she basically is like, it was really nice to feel like I was part of a federation, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. I just really wanted that. 
Yeah, don't go, you guys. (laughs) Come with us to Earth. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All the other aliens um, that are in the void, and they've been there a little longer than Voyager, um, they're all suspicious and backstabbing each other. Uh, But, of course, the Starfleet ship immediately wants to cooperate to succeed, which is cool. But I wonder, in the franchise that we see, why is every alien race such jerks, (laughs) usually? Like... (laughs) Why is it only the Federation member races that seem to have realized that cooperation is the only way forward? It's like the prisoner's dilemma. Like, we just yeah. have to work together. But I think that, you know, because your instinct, well, at least my instinct would say, like, well, all the nice ones got killed. Um, but, uh, yeah. but I do think that, Social like, Darwinism. Voyager is unique in this. And that's why the reason I think this episode works so well is because the progression that you have and being able to see Janeway in these negotiations you leave it thinking like, oh, yeah, that does make sense. You know that she's coming to people's aid without them asking. She's giving them supplies and materials without any ask for a return. And that just kind of breaks people's brains. And it just takes one person to sort of wake everyone else up. And so it makes sense as a viewer watching that where you're like, okay, I can see why no one had done this before. And now... You have this one ship just with the sheer tenacity to take the risk, you know, compared to some of those other ships in there, has a lot more supplies um, and mm-hmm. more firepower than some yeah. of the ships. So, And Janeway is, is exceptional, but so is every, you know, member of Starfleet. They're all representatives of the Federation. So I was a little disappointed when Chakotay and Tuvok slide up and they're like, maybe we should start like taking some stuff too. Yeah. We're getting low on food. But then I kind of thought about it and, you know, Chakotay isn't a Federation person or a yeah. Starfleet person. So maybe he's a little more practical in that regard. And then Tuvok is just, he's just doing the math. He's, he's being like, logical about we've it. We've got X amount of food. Yeah. <laughs> and then in X amount of days, we'll have no food. So maybe we should get some food. Well, and it's interesting, too, to show which of the characters still hold on to the, like, still inherently have that Maquis sensibility. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, like, maybe Torres, you know, she's come such a long way since first being a member of the Maquis. But Chakotay still kind of has that in him where he's like, hey, we're we're just going to scrap ourselves out of this. Um, we know how to survive and we'll fight it. And if everyone hates us, then so be it. Whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and Tom, uh, you know, who's come a long way as well, but you know, former Maquis and, and uh, prisoner is like, oh no, I know this. We got to take his food. Right. Remember, remember, remember the shoot or whatever that episode was called? Like I was, <laughs> I was in prison. Come on. You got to learn these lessons. We got to take everything we can. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but Janeway, of course, is so seasoned at this point that she realizes the uh, the correct way out of the situation. Um, in the animated episode that I brought up, The Time Trap, there's a bit of a different solution to it. And the environment that the Enterprise and the Clothos, the Klingon ship, enter into is a little different. Um, in that pocket dimension, uh, which is called Lethia in the episode, um, the people who have, are there have been there for over a thousand years. This is like a ship graveyard. And they've already created a ruling body, sort of like the Federation Council. And Kirk and Kor have to sort of deal with them, but they deal very strictly with things because I think they put them in time out for like a hundred years because they're <laughs> yeah. taking the long view of stuff. Yeah. So Kirk and Kor have to fight their way out to normal space. And it, only they escape. And I think that that reflects more the the ideals of individualism and American exceptionalism um, at the time yeah. in which the episode was created. Because why not like find a way to help everybody out and then they, they can all be free. Um, and that's Janeway's goal in this. She's like, eh, join us. We, we're all going to get out of here. Like, why, why would we fight? 
Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, well, what do new ships, what are they supposed to do? And she's like, they're going to join us. And then what happens to their supplies? Uh, they'll share and we'll share with them. And everyone's kind of like, what? <laughs> that's, right. Really? Why? Um, it's just, like you said, a totally <laughs> different mindset. I think that's really insightful about the sort of era of the animated series and how that mindset was very different. Yeah, there was a lot of Kirk flying away from a destroyed society and kind of shaking his head like... <laughs> Well, they just aren't as good as us. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, but I really, I just love that theme that has been throughout the, um, all seven seasons of the show of them always struggling to remain, um, you know, the Federation, wherever they are. And of course, as a positive show, it's, they achieve that. I think on a show that was willing to explore a little more darkness, maybe we'd see how they don't do that necessarily. And of course, we confront that in Endgame where uh, Admiral Janeway um, definitely does some things she's off on her own doing her own thing but we also got to see that too with the oh gosh now i'm blanking on the name but with the other federation ship that they found captain ransom yeah with ransom yeah um and like battlestar galactica did a good job of that too of just showing like hey ships can be in this situation and they won't handle it well (laughs) yeah and it's interesting that the 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 uh the ideals of the Federation are apparently baked into Starfleet's laws and charter as well, because they're always returning to that sort of moral North Star, yeah. uh, which must be baked into their rules. Because in Battlestar Galactica, time after time, we see uh, Captain Adama or Admiral Adama say, we can't do this anymore. Like, if we follow the rules, this is an eye for an eye. So yeah. I am saying, let this guy go or we're not going to follow the rules because we just have to survive. Like, that's our point. But I think that's also some of what Janeway has done, not necessarily in this episode, but, you know, when people kind of give her flack for breaking Federation rules, you know, it's kind of like, well, this is a unique situation. Yeah, they weren't designed for this. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Another series that we can compare it to, or maybe you can, is Babylon 5. I've never seen Babylon 5. Oh, it's good. It's been a long time since I've watched it, but I would yeah. that is a very apt comparison. I would say Babylon 5, it's probably more like Deep Space Nine than anything, but just because sure. it's a station, you know, that's got multiple species interacting and it's not all, you know, a, a military compound. Um, but certainly with this episode, I would... I think that the comparisons to Babylon 5, you know, as you mentioned at the top, are intrinsic to the creation of this episode. Um, Mm. I don't think that's an accident. Babylon 5 is great, by the way. You should watch it, but it's one of those sci-fi shows that you can't really just have on in the background. You gotta watch. You gotta pay attention. Just with attention, yeah. I don't know. I just, like, when it came out, it was, you know, obviously going on at the same time as as DS9, and I think as a young man, I had that sort of factional idea of, this is my thing. I'm going to plant a flag, you know, uh, Sega or Nintendo or Coke or Pepsi. And so I went with (laughs) DS9 and I just never doubled back to Babylon 5, but everybody says it's good. So that's okay. I'm completely, yeah, eating my words this week, having gone back now and watched Stargate for my um, stuff. Oh, I have. Okay. It's been years and years since I've seen Stargate and even I just dripped in and out of it. And now I'm just like, man, I should have invested more in this because this is really <laughs> yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Well, as we wrap up the episode here, was there any- anything that you wanted to say still that we've left unsaid? Um, I just, I really like this episode. I think the other kind of cool thing with it is the communication part where they communicate via sound. Um, yes, that yes, we totally auditory. left out <laughs> that weird race. Yeah, yeah, that that was kind of a cool component and. 
and they made it work, I think, by not having it be the A plot, you know, the fact that it could sort of right. be the story in the background. Um, yeah. Cause I feel like if that was the primary story, it probably would have dried up and it would have, not carried as well as it did but i thought it was a very good b plot and um and i enjoyed it it fits well too with the philosophy of everybody working together and showing mercy because of course they show mercy to these beings and then even help them make like a it's like their youtube videos where they make music on a cell phone or something like that that's what it reminded me of Um, but anyway uh, yeah help them out to communicate and then in the end they um, can provide them a solution and apparently get left behind but that's what they want to do but yeah because i think that they realized they were born in that void yeah which we don't have to get into because i don't know how that would work (laughs) yeah i have no idea uh but yeah just uh okay guys well thanks so i guess we're gonna leave you behind (laughs) the other the other thing that i love from this episode is that um we basically get to see the doctor who aliens centaurans again but in star trek (laughs) like they're just they're so much the same alien species visually and i'm always like oh those are the doctor who guys (laughs) but um yeah, it's it just always makes me smile. And they were great. They were the ones that were spying on everyone else. Yeah, that was um was it uh, Tinker Tenor uh, Doctor Spy or Yeah, that was it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, when yeah, we yeah. First yeah. saw them. Yeah. Getting to see them again. I so like their funny. crazy uh society where, you know, everything is it's very bureaucratic and they have to get approval from their bosses or whatever, stick the card in the computer. Okay, right. we can do this plan. Yeah. Which is very much it's like they just pulled from all British science fiction there. It's like between yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Doctor Who and then Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's like those are just peak uh, British sci-fi trips. I love it. Yeah, that was definitely, I think, in their minds when they made that episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Oh, My Space Dad is actually My Space Mom, Captain Janeway. I all love right. her. Um, sure. She's she will science herself out of any situation, and she is like <laughs> me, a Slytherin at heart, a true leader, and will fight her way to the top. And Absolutely. I love it. I always love I when they're <laughs> when uh, Seven or or Bellana is doing some science thing, and then she pops her little head in, and she's like, "Oh, what about this? What about this?" <laughs> just, yeah. Like as a leader, it's probably not great. Like just let your people do their stuff. But when you get moments like warp particles, then it's like, yeah, okay, we'll we'll let that happen. We still get to geek out a little bit occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now that we reach the end of the show, and for your past appearance, you will receive a commission and the rank of full lieutenant. What department on the ship do you work in? Oh, I'm in the science division. If I have to get more specific than that, then I work in astrometrics because that's where my soul lies. I love space. Astrometrics. So um, hopefully uh, with the right resources, you would have uh, like a seven type room where you could um, measure everything and uh, take all the all the readings and, and telemetry. That would be ideal. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. I love that the fact that that room can do a lot of things. <laughs> and yeah. in this episode, it's like, oh, she can track the uh, the, the subspace uh, vortexes or whatever. So good. We got that taken care of. <laughs> right. They basically she was like, I need funding so I can map star charts and compare my data <laughs> to the Federation's data. And then suddenly they leave her alone for two weeks and she's created like an entire Borg spy system. This setup. In right. The- yeah. I love right. it. <laughs> Yeah, just give me the money so I can get back to cooking meals uh, with <laughs> right. hostility for the crew. Yeah, right. I love it. That was so funny. That was <laughs> and the cold open for that was so great. <laughs> yeah, that was great. 
Lieutenant McDonald, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, most of the time on Twitter, at Dr. Aaron Mack, that's D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C. That's also my handle on Twitch. And if you go to Dr. Aaron Mack or AaronPMacDonald.com, either of those will take you to my website where you can find more links and information. That's awesome. And of course, you're appearing on YouTube and Twitch. Uh, any, well, I guess they're not live, any virtual appearances coming up? Oh, coming up, yes. I, well, this will probably have happened by the time it aired, but people can go back and watch it because I am going to be on Comic-Con at home. Oh, um, Okay. With the other only full-time science consultants that Star Trek has had, I am appearing alongside Noreen Shakar and Andre Bormanis, uh, moderated by Larry Nemechek, talking about our careers as science advisors in Star Trek. And that is a really great experience. Um, and then I'm also putting together some talks for uh, Virtual Dragon Con, so people will be able to find those. That's great. And people can catch you on YouTube, I think, still in uh, videos for Virtual Trek Con. Uh, where you talked about um, science and uh, Star Trek. So look for that on YouTube as well. And I think that's it. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a blast, as always. Yeah, it was. And we are signing off until the next mission, Hailing Frequencies Closed. And I'm Caliban. And we're the hosts of the Sailor Noob Podcast. I'm the expert. And I'm the noob. You're talking into the wrong end of the microphone. Aye, aye. Okay. Every week we watch a new episode of Sailor Moon and learn about monsters, fashion, food, culture, and of course, the Sailor Warrior of Love and Justice, Sailor Moon. All right. Now, what is her rank? Is she an admiral or a rear admiral? Okay, shh, shh. The ad's almost over. We're a couple of magical people, and every week we moon prism power make up a new episode. Better midships, study as she goes. Please stop that. Sailor Noob is available every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shiver me timbers. Daddy.